Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Haunted Houses. Hold on a sec. I heard a noise behind that door. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Nexercizer. Finally, get an easy way to get a six-pack for your neck, only with the Nexercizer. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is the show where we like to uh, analyze film, break it apart, uh, try to see why it ticks the way it does. Part of the filmmaking process is doing a lot of random things before you ever step on set. And one of the things you got to help me out with yesterday uh, was auditions. Like I'm in the middle of casting, uh, towards the end of casting a uh, for a film, a VR film I'm directing next month. And my producer, uh, Ricky, who we had on before, wasn't able to make it. And so Todd helpfully stood in um, to help run it and do line readings alongside everyone else. So I'm just curious, uh, was that you've had your own casting sessions before, so you weren't like, you know, stepping in for the first time. But I'm curious, was that interesting to you at all? Or was it just kind of rote and you're like, eh, you know, one casting session is the same as the next? No, it was great because, um, you know, I got to kind of like see how you like to operate mm -hmm. as a director and, and what exactly you're looking for. Because in between uh, auditions, we talked about like, okay, what was, what was he like? What was she like? And, you know, what did you like about them and not like? And that's always informative, right? Because, you know, as a director, you know, you, you have, I think a lot of, a lot of times you have someone in your, you know, kind of like a look in mind, but it's also cool. It was also cool to like see you, you know, switch gears on an actor, right? You had this guy reading for one role and then you said, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to send you some sides right now. I think you might fit for this other role. And like immediately, you know, like I could see your brain working to, to you know, and like thinking of possibilities, not just like, not just like how are they doing on this role, but where would they fit in the over trying to fit someone in, you know, or not trying to fit someone in, but trying to see, could this work thinking outside the box rather than just, just saying, is he good for this role that he's, he's auditioning for? Well, maybe not, but maybe he's better for the doctor instead of the nurse or, or whatever. And that was really cool to see and, and to watch you like, like press that, that possibility instead of just saying, oh, he's not right for that role. Like, well, maybe not, but maybe he is better for this one. And, and I liked that a lot. I also liked seeing, I never get to see other actors, you know, I mean, yes, I do my own casting calls sometimes, mm. but it's rare. I think you do way more than me. And so it's really interesting to see how people come. Some people come super prepared. Other people come not prepared <laughs> at all. And it is such a, it is so stressful for me. It was very stressful. There was one gentleman who came in and, and, you know, as you can attest and he wasn't off book, but at the same time, he was on his phone in his car. And that's fine. He was on his phone in his car. Like, who cares? Mm -hmm. Like, yep. I don't give a I don't care where you are. But, you know, every time he tried to navigate away to the script, we couldn't see him, you know, because that's how Zoom is. If, unless you're on Zoom on your phone, then people can't see you. And he didn't think about that beforehand. And so we were like, sorry, bro, we need to see you. And... Uh, so he had to try to get off book like in the moment and he was just not, not doing it. So you, but, but, you know, then you jump in and you say, okay, man, well, how about you send a, a, a taped audition, you know, by Monday? And that was really cool. That was like, 
you know, and he was apologetic at the mm. end of it. You know, he said, he said, guys, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, whatever. And look, we've all got our things and this wasn't an in-person callback. This was, uh, you know, a zoom callback. So, you know, it's understandable. Um, and that was really cool that he apologized, but you, to your, you know, to your credit, you know, you weren't trying to discount him because of the situation you were saying, okay, bro, well, how about this? Send in a taped audition. I really loved that. I thought that was really cool and refreshing. I think in a lot of time, in 90% of the auditions I've been in, that has not been the case. It's, it's been like a, you get it in the moment or you, or you don't, and that's it. And, you know, I don't, I don't see any benefit to that, you know, either, Mm -hmm. you know, because if you're like that, then not only does that person feel terrible, but also you might miss out on the actual person that you're trying to cast because they're just in a bad scenario, a bad situation. Really, that guy could be a fantastic actor, but you don't get to see that because of the situation that he's in that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't prepared for. Because we can't always be prepared for all the situations we're in. He didn't know that about Zoom. It's not, it's probably, you know, we know that because we're on Zoom all the time. But if he's not, how is he going to know that? You know, he's going to think, you know what, I don't need to be off book. I have the sides. I can just look at them while I'm, and, and that's, and that's fine. But anyway, it was, it was pretty informative for me. You know, I, I enjoyed it. That's really cool. Yeah. And I, and I agree, man. I think, you know, there's, I use auditions and callbacks for a lot of things. You know, it's, it's testing someone's ability to show up on time, prepared to do a thing, especially callbacks for me are a really big deal. Um, because running a, a production is all about timing and you're trying to do the most with the least amount of time. Because if you can do, you know, 10 things on day one within eight hours, that's going to be a lot cheaper than doing 10 things in two days over the course of 16 hours, you know? And so the more efficient you can be, the better, which also requires everyone being on the same page, showing up on time, ready to do their work. Um, and so callbacks can be really important to suss out who is actually serious about this and who's uh, just pretending who's one who's daydreaming. And so I use that and, but at the same time, weird things do pop up like, and seeing this guy, I was like, Mm, you know, if, uh, I could see there's a little bit of talent. I, I could, you know, we, we stayed in it for, uh, one full read through of, of his sides. Uh, and that's what you call whenever you go to audition, you're not given a script. You're usually given what's called sides. And it's just the parts that are relevant to you and your character and your audition. And even on the day uh, of production, sometimes you'll get sides and that's the, the parts of the script that are, pertinent to that day of filming. So sides are uh, a pretty common, you know, uh, lingo in, in film production. And so we got through his sides one time. And at the end, I was like, okay, let's run through that again. I, I wanted to really hear how he put together certain things. Um, Cause he had a really good, strong look. Um, he, he had the right kind of uh, vocal inflection and uh, all the potentials right there. And I was like, okay, let's, let's just see if we can get a little bit of the popcorn to pop. Um, and we saw it. And whenever, you know, we, we had him run through that last little bit uh, one or two more times. I was like, okay. Yeah. Once, once it's in his head, the flow is there. Um, he's in the moment. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole setup is terrible, but let's give you a real chance here because I can see the potential. Uh, and I completely agree with what you're saying. You might miss out. And that's the thing I really try to do uh, for my part in, in every phase of the, of, of the process, whether it's, you know, doing my own casting sessions or even in footage, whenever I'm reviewing footage and about to make my own edit, I go through every second of the footage. I don't just 
go to, you know, where'd the slate or what is it? Where does the take begin? I want to see what's happening before the take. Like there's been a handful of times uh, and granted only a handful, but it happens where there's this really great moment. Uh, I remember a while back we made a film and the, the camera op, um, Andrew started recording before he had the camera up to his shoulder. So as he was, he hit record and as he lifted the camera up to his shoulder, uh, the actor was already standing where they were and it was, it just became this beautiful, like boom up move up the actor's body. And I was like, I love this shot. And it was in slow motion. So whenever you slow it down, it kind of removed all the bumps and instead it had this flowy movement to it. And if I was just worried about where's the slate, I would have missed this opportunity to, to, you know, create an emotional moment. Uh, and I try to approach that with the acting too. It's like, man, not everything's going to go the right way, but if I can see the right attitude, like you said, he apologized. He knew he messed up, which is important for me to understand. Is this guy really appreciative of, of the whole creative process and the way we're in it together? And he has responsibility for his part. And he did. I was like, man, I can work with that as opposed yeah. to, and this is a good contrast. We were talking about this too. And I was really glad to hear uh, your reaction to it. I had an actor, we did zoom auditions for the first round. And then on the audition, we say, Hey, we're going to do We're doing callbacks next Thursday and Friday in Austin on the East side. We have plenty of parking space. We're not going to do it in the middle of downtown where it's hard to get in and out of. We were in the house on the East side. That's central to everybody. Easy to park, easy to access all that stuff. Are you available? And some people were like, Oh, actually I'm in Georgia. Well, First, you saw this was a local hire to Austin. Why did you waste our time with this audition? But cool. Hey, thanks, man. Uh, and you know, you don't say those things to to them because you never know. You might actually need them. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you hold your tongue. Uh, but at the same time, if someone says yes, like, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, it's five hours of driving for me. But yeah, I have no problem. Like, Because it's a local hire production. That means you need to be able to make Austin your home base while we're working so that we're not paying for your travel or your hotel. That's all very relevant. And if you suddenly throw that on us, you're effectively doubling your rate, the amount it costs to, to use you. Uh, and on our projects, we are, you know, pretty thin on margins sometimes. And it's important to, to have all that regimented and understood beforehand. You don't drop this on someone at the last minute. Cool. We're auditioning in Austin, but by the way, we're shooting in Detroit, like, man, <laughs> and you need, you, like, we don't do that to you. You can't do that to us. Like, this is all everyone communicating properly. Oh, that's happened to me. But yeah, uh, I get it. That you suddenly it's need a, to be a local hire, like in a completely different state. I had to miss my daughter's birthday because of it. That's I didn't hard. have to, but like, right. I did, it was a good opportunity, but it was the last minute they switched states on me. Oh, oh yeah. We're shooting in North Carolina and we're not paying you anymore. Like, this is why, this is why, this is also why you need a good agent. Yeah. Because when that shit happens, your rate needs to be a lot higher. Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyway, sorry, keep going. No, that's completely accurate. You need someone who will fight for you and, and know when it's time to fight. I think there's bad times to fight um, mm -hmm. that can ruin your name. I, we had an actor last summer that we negotiated with her beforehand and suddenly, you know, her agent steps in and starts changing the, the, the game plan. And it's like, mm. man. We're never working with your agent again. Like I hope, and she since left and and found another agent. So I have no problem working with her again. But I'm not doing that. That's yeah. uh, that's low handed way to deal with people. But uh, so one actor was like, "Yeah, you know, it's fine. You know, I I have no problem. I'll be there." And then the 
the day of, she's like, I can't make it. Like, I just, that's just a lot of driving. I just, I, can we just do another zoom audition? And I was like, Ricky, what, what in the world? Like this, this is not okay. And Ricky's not an actor. He's a producer. And so to him, it's like, he's, he is completely empathetic and understanding. He's like, I get it, man. That's a lot of driving just to have a, to roll the dice on maybe you get a yes, but you're probably going to get a no. I wouldn't want to do that either. And I'm like, that's right. That's why you are not an actor. <laughs> like, right. Exactly. This is what we sign up for. Like I've been, I've driven to, you know, had six hours of driving. I've had uh, multiple times for no's, you know, that's, that's the game, you know, and this is what you sign up for. And if you're not okay with that, you do not sign up for it. And so we did her audition and, uh, she was okay. And I think if she had showed up, I probably would have submitted her. But because she didn't, I'm like, there's better actors uh, that are better for this role. That you trust. Yeah, that I trust. That have earned my trust. And I'm I'm not, yeah, your word just took a hit. Now, if I knew this person, I'm like, I get it. And there were other actors who suddenly couldn't show up either. But they had reasons, right? It was like, we, I, I booked a gig. Um, and it's filming this, you know, during both of those days. Cool. Let's do a callback on Zoom. Like I, I have no problem accommodating that because you're an actor. You're there to work. And so anyway, yeah, it was. it's always a fun process. It's always a learning process of finding good talent um, for that are right for the role uh, that you can trust. It's a weird, long, sifting process of just figuring it all out. <laughs> and then, of course, we'll submit to the client. They'll be like, none of these work. And you just go back to square one. So who knows? Yeah, of course. <laughs> anyway uh, a lot of good actors that probably did not have to audition for today's movie uh, what are we covering today man today we are covering dune so if you haven't seen it uh it's just out in theaters uh and i believe now on hbo max but please go see it in the theater if you haven't seen it uh please pause the episode and go watch it because uh, we're going to spoil a lot of stuff spoil everything we'll talk about uh some of the cinematography we'll look at some of the writing and directing discuss like the voice and visions and other such stuff and things and stuff and a quick synopsis of the film uh the son of a noble family is entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy and i'm going to butcher all of these names directed by denny valenuve sure why not uh, I've heard people pronounce his last name different ways, so yeah, that's, that's how I'm going to say it. Uh, screenplay by John Spites, Denny Danuve, and Eric Roth, based on the novel by Frank Herbert, cinematography by Greg Frazier, uh, starring Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides, Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica Atreides, Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto Atreides, Jason Momoa as Duncan, Stellan Skarsgård as Baron Harkonnen, Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck, Javier Bardem as Stilgar, and Zendaya as Chani. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? Paul. 
boy. <laughs> Duncan, can I trust you with something? Yes, always, you know that. I've been having dreams about a girl on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. Hey, you. Put on some muscle? I did? No. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's only awakening in my mind. You need to face your fears. Come with me. So many questions. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask if it was worth the wait. I don't think understanding what we now understand, I don't think that's really a fair question. But I am curious if it at least did you walk out feeling like, oh, this kind of nailed it for me or I let, I guess let me rephrase. Like I walked out and I was like, hmm, okay. I saw it twice, Thursday and Friday. I, I watched it with um, first time by myself. I got tickets early. And then my producer, after uh, a long couple of days of auditions, wanted to take me out to see it again. And I was like, yeah, fine, whatever. And But beforehand, we're in the middle of the day. And he's like, hey, so don't tell me anything. Just, you know, did you? And he didn't get the sentence out. And I was like, eh. Like, that was just kind of my <laughs> response. I was like, I can't. He's like, oh, okay, I get it. And I was like, no, you really don't. I can't really... It's 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 hard to put a finger on like how I felt about it, to be honest. And so it's a very I don't know, I don't want to say blah, it's not a blah movie, but because of how incomplete it is, because I didn't realize this is part one for somehow both times I watched it. I did not see part one clearly underneath the title. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, right there. <laughs> right there. I was so fascinated with the uh with the font of Dune that I was just studying. Oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I couldn't so cool. see it. And it's brief. Like the title's on there very quickly. And so I'm just curious what your reaction to it was. Were you like emotionally connecting to this thing or were you, were you hoping for more or was it right about what you were thinking, uh, walking in? I felt similar. Uh, so first off, I went and saw it with a, uh, a neighbor of mine who hooked me up with, uh, early screening tickets. We saw it a week ago, uh, a little more, a little more. And we were late. Mm-hmm. sorry <laughs> it just took because it was a it was a film festival here in marin and by the time they let us in we were i don't know maybe a minute late two minutes late so that whole intro the explanation the exposition missed all of it missed the part one so i'm sitting here mm-hmm. watching this not knowing that you know and i had heard that it might have been a two-parter but you know it was just nobody had seen it so it was just people you know like saying it might be. And then, uh, so I didn't know until the very end, like, oh my God, it is going to be a two-parter. Okay. Okay, cool. But throughout the film, I was struggling because I don't know anything about Dune. I didn't, I didn't watch the original. I watched part of the original, but mm-hmm. it was pretty painful. Um, yeah. and, and I started reading it, it, reading the book and the book is way better. Oh, wow. But still difficult in its own mm-hmm. way. And then, Watching it, I don't know how to say this without it coming off bad, but I love, I love Timothy Chalamet. Mm -hmm. I do. I really do. But there was just something about like, he was just so brooding 
in this and not in like the best way. And it wasn't a performance thing. I thought his performance was great. Yeah. I don't really know how to put it. Um, but it was just a lot of just him being in his own head, you know, mm. and I think that's part of the story. So it's important, but because the movie is so long, it's a lot of him being in his own head without a payoff at the end. Well, a massive payoff at right. the end. There is a payoff, but not really. And so we're spending a lot of time, you know, like, like with these beautiful shots and everything, it, it just, it just felt a little bit like, man, okay, let's, let's, let's get on with it, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's so weird to say this because I, you know, your, your description of, eh, but you still don't <laughs> understand what I mean by that is perfect because I cannot tell you necessarily why, eh, because also the special effects were some of the best I've ever seen in any film ever. And I saw it on a normal screen, not even Dolby, you know, like it was just, it was just normal and it was just, it was unbelievable. I thought, and I was, and, and to be honest, like Hans Zimmer is my favorite uh, composer and he, I'd seen a clip uh, earlier before I went that this is the best film he'd ever worked on. He's worked on like 130 films. He said, this is the best film I've ever worked on. And so expectations go really high at that exactly. point. <laughs> I was like, not only expectations of the film, but expectations of the music. And there wasn't anything in there that I noticed. I was, that, that was going to be sense? a big question to you is like how you felt about the music. Cause it's fine. I, with the exception of that kind of tribal woman that didn't work for me. Like it just, I just kept hearing wonder woman. Um, and yeah. it really distracted me and I, it just, it felt out of place. It didn't to me work. And I think, the only way it works is through repeated viewings, just numbing you mm -hmm. to it. And it just becomes part of the landscape. But on first viewing, it yeah. always pulled me out. I'm like, what is this? Like, this doesn't track. It feels yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you feel the same way. Cause yeah. I, you know, I go to, into a Hans Zimmer scored film and I expect yeah. not necessarily even something memorable. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to expect interstellar every single time. Right. Yeah. Right. That is a once in a lifetime thing. I feel like, yeah, uh, or like once in a decade, at least mm -hmm. thing, you know, John Williams did it probably <laughs> a dozen times. Um, but I think there might've been a disconnect here between like the, the, the needs of the film and the needs of the score, because, you know, if you look at a film, let's, I mean, just, and I know we don't talk about other films on this, mm -hmm. but just to bring it in for a second, look at a film like, like Star Wars or look at a film like Interstellar where you have a motif that you go back to that like it like kind of like encapsulates the feeling of the film, right? A few notes. That's all it takes. That didn't exist here. Um, at least that I noticed there are a lot of kind of like drop things, which are really cool, but that's not a motif. That's like an entire scale. And so I was really looking for that. That's what, that's what Hans Zimmer is really, really, that when he's at his best, that's what he does. And he just, it just didn't give that to me, give me that feeling. And it didn't make me feel like I was in the, um, like I was part of this world. I think part of the thing that, that scores are best at is, you know, they give you that motif. They're like, this is where we're going to live. So when you hear this, you feel at home. And maybe the reason why it's not there is because they are not at home. 
they are on this planet that's not their home that's like new and 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 everything is changing all the time and they're learning and but we won't know that until the next until part 2 right where where Paul becomes at home where the, where the desert becomes his home and then now maybe we have this motif that we can go back to i'm hoping that might be the plan but it just felt like you said like everything was just out of place nothing felt right and maybe that's because Paul never felt right. He never felt right in his own skin. He never felt, you know, at home um, where he was. He was always, he's always searching. He doesn't know if he wants to be, you know, the, um, if he wants to rule or not. Like there's all these questions that he has. And maybe because we're living in his head and his head is not, you know, stable, neither is the score. I don't know, but it just didn't. Also, the choices that were made just didn't feel like they helped the shots. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned the tribal thing. I mean, that feels like a duh thing. Like, oh, okay, we're in the middle of the desert. So we're going to hear tribal sounds like, come on, it's been done. What yeah. else can we do here? Again, the shots were beautiful. I thought that, uh, Oscar Isaac was fantastic in it. I, <laughs> I, I love Josh Brolin, the, the, the training scene with, Timothy Chalamet was fantastic. Yeah. I thought that the they had to do a ton of exposition in this mm -hmm. because they had to bring in people like me who knew nothing about Dune. And they had to explain a lot. And, and I thought that they did a really good job doing that. And what's crazy about that is the the reason to break this film up into however many, like I can imagine this being three at least, maybe four or five. I don't know. You know, how, I've never read Dune. Um, I vaguely remember the uh the the original movie i think i watched that like 10 years ago and that's a struggle you're absolutely right man that's just a it's a slog but yeah and so the reason though to to break a movie into so many pieces is to reduce the amount of exposition you really need to introduce and even within that they still had a lot of expedition exposition that they had to uh, run through in order to set the stage and in some ways i think that's the the achilles heel of this film is you're building a world uh, that you're re you're returning the space opera, right? We're we're coming back to a space opera for the first time in ages since I mean Star Wars, I guess. I don't know what else I would call a, a space opera um, that I've seen in the last twenty years, I guess. But having a, a, a space opera means that there's a lot of families, right? Um, there's a lot of enemies and villains and friends that become one of those things, right? Betrayals. And to have a betrayal, you first need to have a relationship um, that you're placing expectations on. Uh, and so, and of course to have a relationship with expectations, you need to, you know, build that first like that. So there's all these things that need to be built and that, if you break a film apart into multiple, you know, movies, uh, then that gives you more time to build these things. Uh, but yet even with them, cause this whole movie is basically just one big setup. Like you really accomplish very little other than establishing who the families are, what their roles in the empire kind of are more or less. And, how the emperor is manipulating these two houses to, to fight against each other. Like that's all very clearly in there. You're introducing the idea of spice, right. Um, and Arakan and the, the Fremen. So you're spent and yet, you know, you have two and a half hours to kind of lay all this stuff out, but because of every time you walk into 
an epic like this, you know, this feel has a very Game of Thrones kind of feel where you have all of these families and all these houses and they have all kinds of feelings about each other. And it just takes time to learn who House Harkonnen is and who House Atreides is. And it's this movie has such a better feel the second time around. Like I've watched it three times now. And the first time I could not have been more lost. Uh, but then the second time I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's how it's harkening. The first time I thought the Baron was the emperor. Like I was so confused. Yep. Um, and then the second time around, I'm like, Oh, okay. The emperor we haven't met like this is some other dude and some other, you know, place of the, the galaxy. Whereas the Baron is, is just the man of the planet. Like he's jealous and all the other things. And so that took me a, a lot of appreciation that second time around. I, I kind of had the same same problem as you, though. My first time watching it, I really did miss the opening because I picked a seat at the draft house that was like right next to the kitchen. And so they were just in and out and talking uh-huh. right in my ear. And so I maybe the first 15, 20 minutes, I, was, I asked like, hey, can I move to the complete opposite end of this row? Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. So I did. And that saved the rest of the movie for me. But I still missed a lot. And if you missed that opening, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think the bigger problem, too, is I think it's fine to have a setup film that is all about learning the the sandwalk and, you know, what it means to live on on uh, Arrakan and all that stuff. I think the bigger problem was there was just no emotional connection for me. Like there's no real strong arcs. Um, It's all about setting up his arc. Uh, There's really no strong themes, right? It's and, and really it's about royalty and royalty can be so boring, you know, because it's all about stiff upper lip and poise and posture and understanding your role in, in, in the family and in the galaxy. And that can just be, it's not fun to watch from from a lot of aspects, and I think they they really did try right to create some bonding emotional connection between Paul and the Duke, you know, before he died, and yet, eh, I just it still felt kind of formal, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I agree with everything you said earlier. Like his performance is great, and Oscar Isaac has never turned in a bad performance, uh, not that I've seen. I've seen him in bad movies. Rebecca Ferguson. Oh my gosh. She was amazing. She's probably the best part of this film for me. I agree. I, yeah. Yeah. Her pain when he has his hand in the box, the best part of the whole film for me. Yeah. And, oh man, I'm, I'm excited because that whole, that whole sequence is all performance. It's her reacting and her fear and it's Paul reacting. So that's the editing and the way they quicken the, the pace and the intercutting the music slowly kind of heightens. Right. But mm-hmm. ultimately there's no real visual effects there. There's like cutaways to the visions of a hand being burned to ash, uh, to kind of give the impression of what he's feeling, but largely it's just acting great acting and, and good editing. <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. that's such yeah. a great little sequence. I freaking love that. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely loved it. I mean her, anytime she was on the screen, I just couldn't help but look at her. She's so beautiful and such a wonderful actress. I was I, like in it the whole time with her for sure. 100%. And you know, the, the I, I'm not trying to crap on the movie either because I think that when it come when it's all said and done and all of these are out and done, I think it's going to be brilliant. Mm-hmm. And so so just a just a, so we can come back to this episode 
Right. I'm going to say, <laughs> not I'm, I'm saying this so that like, it, you know, yeah, in two years when the next one or a year when the next one comes out and it's like, oh my gosh, now I really get all this. It's, this is so brilliant. The foresight and all that stuff, you know, just calling that out. I will say whenever I sat down, I didn't know how long the runtime was going to be. And so I just assumed this could be three, three and a half hours. If they're going to get through all of Dune, uh, it's going to be long. And I Normally don't, but I just checked my phone right before, you know, the lights went down. I was like, what's the runtime on this? Two and a half hours. Oh God. I hope they don't try to tell the whole story. So I, I was on, you know, I was tense the entire time, just hoping that they didn't try to accomplish everything. Cause the further into the film you get and realize how far we have not gone, we haven't introduced uh Zendaya's character, Chani. Yeah. And you're, I'm just like, oh man, they better not try to rush that ending. Like, and so whenever it ended, I was, I felt so relieved um, that I was yeah. like, okay, good. They're going to do this right. And man, they haven't even like fought the Baron really. Right. They lost to the Baron. So I can see this. And again, I have not read the books. I do not remember the movie. My assumption based on what they're talking about in this film is that they got to go to war and, and conquer the Baron whatever that means. I don't know if you kill him or you make him your slave and your pet or whatever. And then I, he's also has his eye on the throne. And so I assume two movies at a minimum to take care of the Baron and the emperor. And depending on how big and bad the emperor is, because uh, Harkin house Harkonnen is richer than the emperor. So maybe, you know, it's not that hard after you take over Harkonnen um, or maybe you have to go and recruit a bunch of the other houses. And that's a whole other film. I can see this being a three, four part, you know, series. And I agree, mm-hmm. like at the end of it, I think we're going to say this was freaking genius and we've needed yeah. this in the, in the, especially, the- especially if it grows, you know, musically as well and changes and evolves, mm. you know, then all of a sudden it's a cohesive thing. It's a cohesive 10 hours of film or nine hours of film rather than, you know, this contained two and a half hour, you know, snippet that doesn't make sense on its own necessarily. And I agree so much with what you said earlier made a lot of sense. Like I hadn't thought of it. It didn't occur to me what was missing in the music would have been motifs um, and, and themes that really tie characters and to a specific feeling and that kind of thing. But I think they had those opportunities with the visions seeing, you know, the future would have been the perfect place to start inserting these little motifs. And then at the end could have really started introducing that big time as a tie-in to the next film. Um, yeah. And so maybe there's a missed opportunity there, or like you suggested, maybe they just have a bigger plan in mind on how to approach that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and I, I also was thinking when I left, you know, they made this pre-pandemic um, and then they pushed it a year. So did they make the other one already? Or are they making it? Do you know? Do we know? Like, when is the next? When is the next one coming out? Is it going to be another three years, longer? Like, I googled and doing my best to not see any like spoilers or overviews, and I saw someone suggest that twenty twenty three would be the next one. I don't know that that's been confirmed, uh, or if they were just kind of, you know, shooting from the hip. But uh, that mm-hmm. seems like a reasonable amount of time to crank through this i'm also also curious if denny is going to continue directing these if he's in it for the long haul or if he was just like i want to introduce this and then produce from the side i've just never imagined him as like a saga director Mm -hmm. like i think Mm -hmm. it would be cool but it also would make me a little sad that we're not getting his other more original stuff um yeah so yeah because that dude is with his own stories oh my gosh (laughs) 
Probably one of my favorites. I yeah. just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't he, see anybody competing with him right now yeah. in that regard. He just wins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, what what other notes did you have? So cinematography wise, I I really like how much uh, shallowed up the field shots that we had. Like there's plenty of wide and deep, you know, depth shots that show you the world. But normally in this kind of film, I feel like you shy away from those really shy, uh, shallow shots, which I find interesting for a big budget sci-fi film, right? Because it makes it more intimate and brings a lot more focus on the characters and their uh, what they're thinking and feeling um, instead of focusing on the wow factor. And I, I just think that's the right way to go for big budget films. You wow me with the scale through hiding the scale, right? You keep the, uh, the focus around the humans and that makes everything else feel bigger um, because we are so small in contrast to these things. Now they pick their moments to have like big wide aerial shots, right? The, Oh man, look how massive this, uh, spice tanker is and then you have a worm swallow that thing like that's that's a pretty good use of scale uh from you know above and wide wide angles but for the all these smaller moments i just really loved how okay they were with spending time in these you know very shallow moments it's a nice direction and that's denny being character focused as he so often is there's a lot of flaring and the visions and dreams. So whenever he's imagining things, suddenly we're getting all these sun streaks hitting the lens and um, it kind of obscures everything a little bit. And it just gives it a really organic, humanistic feel. It's like you're squinting into the sun. You're trying to see something and it's just, it's there, but it's not there. And it really helps sell the idea that this isn't real, real time. This isn't reality. He's seeing something and it's a really easy contrast from the rest of the film which has very few flarings like you don't see a lot of lens flares or streaks across the lens and um that's a very specific way to approach telling visually what the visions and dreams look and feel like to the character and they also have a fair amount of day for night especially towards the end which i mean i really like day for night stuff it just appeals to me uh, for whatever reason and in this case it made a lot of sense especially when they were out there in the middle of the desert because there is no lighting like, and it kind of emphasizes like that we're away from technology and society and they're on their own and they're just relying on each other and trying to navigate the night uh, the best they can. And so going day for night there really helps emphasize uh, the lack of technology when, when they're out there. Uh, otherwise, you know, it, it starts to feel weird and uh, maybe just a little hollow when you're saying that they're, they're on their own. I don't know. I like it. I think yeah. So. Just a, just a aside with that, like, cause I like day for night stuff too, but I think it's, and I think you probably agree. It depends on, in a lot of ways, it depends on the genre, right? Mm. I mean, look at a, look at a film like Sicario, another Josh Brolin film, right? Like they just shot night, right? <laughs> so like, <laughs> you know, in some of those scenes where it was just like, it's just dark and you can't see anything, right? That's, that was purposeful. That was like real life needed it to be real as real as possible. And so shooting day for night would have felt very not real. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then, but in this, in this film, you know, it's sci-fi, which means that uh, you can get away with a lot more. Also like we, um, it does do that, that, that thing that you were just mentioned about, like, you know, you don't have any light source there so you shouldn't be seeing them very well but at the same time we do need to see them we need to see mm. their actions 
as opposed to like in Sicario, some of those scenes that are at night, we don't, we just need to know they're there. We don't need to see what they're doing. And so it's, it really depends, I guess, not just on the genre, but on, on the purpose of it. Right. So in this case, this was perfect to do day for night. I thought it was, you're, you're spot on, right. We need to see their actions, how they're moving through the desert, that they're doing the, the walk and, you know. and that they are in the desert. I think that's a really good, yeah. you're, you're, you're pointing out something really good. Like, that you can see them walking through the desert and it also creates a little bit of tension because you're acutely aware of sandworms and you're kind of anticipating, am I going to see the trimmer pop up? And if you can't see deep into the background, um, that kind of, that can begin to hinder that sense of tension and, and, and setting. Um, and so yeah. shooting day for night is just the easiest, cleanest and, uh, uh smartest way I think to go about accomplishing yeah. all those goals. Yeah. I can't even, I can't imagine what, what all that sand did to the cameras like oh my gosh <laughs> that had to be a nightmare to be the camera tech yeah i wonder if they use like rain gear in order to kind of keep the mm. sand out you know uh water underwater housing is what you'd normally call that oh. and so i yeah, wonder if that point. was a, a a thing they did if they just said no we're going to use air compressors and constantly like clean these things out um i don't know ooh. had to that's just something that I didn't think about during, which yeah. <laughs> says a lot about the film True. that like, I'm not thinking about that, especially because we do this podcast and we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. But, uh, so that says a lot, but now that I, now that we're talking about it, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That had to be a, a Herculean task. <laughs> totally. And real quick, I'll just run through the beats of the story for, if you only saw this once and you're a little confused, uh, maybe just covering, touching on a few of these elements will help clear up some of the uh, issues and give you a better overview. From the couple of easy things, spice, right? So spice has two different significances. For the Fremen, it's sacred. It's a hallucinogen that brings them long life and enormous health benefits. And the prolonged exposure to it also turns their eyes blue. Um, and so that's how you can kind of tell you know, who's been around Iraq and for a really long amount of time and ingesting like spice, but spice for everyone else is necessary for interspace travel, which made it the most valuable substance in the universe. Um, and therefore Iraq in itself, a highly contentious planet, because uh, you have the people who live there and just want to exist in, you know, peace. And then you have everyone else who wants to go there and steal their resources, which you can draw parallels to in our world through multiple time periods and land geographies. And for the Bene Gesserit, so the Bene Gesserit is his mom himself is kind of, he's not Bene Gesserit. I, I, I take that Bene Gesserit as like the Catholic church. It's not a thing. It's uh, it's an organization, a people group. And so they have their own plans, right? The Reverend mother even says our plans are measured in centuries and we have other prospects. If Paul is not the, you know, the one, the Messiah. Yeah. The one, and this sounds very Catholic churchy, right? Um, this is the way the Catholic church thinks. Uh, my favorite line from spotlight is whenever they're talking about trying to, you know, take on the Catholic church. And he's like, you don't understand. They think in centuries. They don't think in months or years or decades. They think in centuries. That's a whole of, and so the Bene Gesserit kind of have this very Catholic church vibe to them. Even whenever they're preparing for war on, uh, uh, Harkonnen, where that, that 
Gimme Prime or whatever it's called. Uh, they're kind of going around and giving everyone this Ash Wednesday kind of mark on their their head as they're preparing for war. Like this is clearly a representation of Catholicism, or at least borrowing, you know, some of that imagery and uh, ideology uh, as a means of generating this this idea of the Bene Gesserit. And then they're crossing bloodlines. So part of the thing is they can control if they have a boy or a girl at birth. And the mom, Lady Jessica, decided to have a boy. And the rest, the Reverend Mother and the rest were like, you're playing with fire, man. Do you know what you're doing? Uh, you're, you're being very arrogant right now. Because they've been crossing bloodlines for thousands of years in order to try and breed the perfect messiah a mind that can break space and time past and future and so probably this is going to be our paul or at least that's where all the stars are aligning to be this is paul so at some point he's going to be able to break space and time and blend the past and the future and meld it to his will or something i have zero idea of what that could mean if that means suddenly duncan is dead but he can bring him back or he can bring his father back I don't know. Uh, that could be cool and, and could lend to some really fun moments, you know, later on in the film. And then the Reverend Mother negotiated with the Baron to save Paul and Lady Jessica, probably in faith that Paul could be the one she needs to make sure he's taken care of. And also, I guess, keep your place in society. If you allow someone to run roughshod over your over your group, uh, you lose power in the eyes of everyone that matters. And so you kind of need to protect your own and step up uh, just to keep your own balance of power. Because if, if they can do that to your followers, why can't they do that to you? Like you just, you go down a notch. And so I can see them, you know, manipulating things for their own way. And then the Iraqi people uh, at a certain point are chanting for the Messiah, right? When they land, um, they're saying this phrase and that's when they translate, whatever that Iraqan phrase is into it basically means Messiah. Okay, cool. But the other comment that uh, I think his mom makes is the Bene Gesserit have been preparing the way for centuries. And that's very Catholic, right? They're converting native mm -hmm. people to their religion, like, um, and almost using them for their own ends. And, and so whenever you factor in like Atreides, Harkonnen, uh, was what was the other one? Carino, House Carino was the one that pops up at the beginning to to say, "Hey, the emperor says you're you, he's assigning you to Arakan." Um, right. So we're getting a bigger and bigger sense of this world. And Bene Gesserit is not just there to serve; like they're running subterfuge and doing their own thing. Um, and to some extent, uh, they're they're doing their own thing. And so it's very Catholic. Uh, the Catholic Church is you know throughout history have been their own, you know, state and point. In fact, they kind of have their own state within Italy, right? Uh, the Vatican city is its own thing, man. Um, they, they stand apart from Italy from what I understand anyway. Um, mm -hmm. story-wise, we also have the Iraq, Arakan, like control of Arakan or Arrakis, um, is a whole point the center of this entire story of this movie the emperor staged a war to weaken both houses he saw harkonnen become richer than himself and he sees atreides gaining more power right and and so he's like here's what i'm going to do i'm going to take away Har harkonnen's planet and give it to atreides and now i'm just going to watch and let the drama unfold um, to my advantage 
that's what the emperor's thinking. And so then you also have Atreides. They rule on their own home planet, Kaladin, through air power and sea power. And what the Duke tells his son is that on Arrakis, we're going to need desert power. This is about building our force. We need the Fremen. We're not there to rule them. We're there to partner with them. Um, and ultimately, I can imagine he wants to give them their planet back uh, while he uses them as their... He gives them protection and aid, and they do the same. Like Everyone's going to win in that scenario. I would imagine that's his, that was his plan, you know, before mm-hmm. uh, he died. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, they do a good job of setting him up to be a good guy, too. Yeah. They have that conver- he has that conversation with Paul in the um, graveyard or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and basically tells him, even if you don't want to rule, you've, the only thing you've, I've ever needed you to be is my son. Like, this is a good guy. This is not a guy who's coming to to you know be a tyrant over other people, you know, and I think they do a good job of of showing that. Good point. It paints that whole house as someone you can root for. Like this isn't just a balance of powers of terrible people. It's like no, there's clearly someone that we like and we want to get behind. Yeah, and that is very much the moment that they kind of solidify that idea that you're not here to just do what I want you to do. You're going to be your own person. And if that's what I'm hoping for, great. If not, great. That's okay. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. So I think that kind of covers uh, the general storyline from there. I think everyone gets the the, the smaller pieces or the bigger pieces um, that Harkonnen struck back. The emperor did what they wanted them to do or whatever. And uh, we're set up for him joining the Fremen and becoming joining forces, whether that's becoming one of them or uh, finding his middle ground of, I am all these things, which I think mm-hmm. is what he really needs to be. You can't just suddenly be entirely Fremen. Like you're still Atreides, you're still Caladan, but you also need to find uh, what these people can offer you to, to help you grow into the man that you need to be. Yeah. Writing and direction, uh, writing and directing. One, I love the slow pacing, like letting a lot of these scenes breathe. Characters can react on their own time. Denny is always fantastic on this. And I, it's one reason to study him for me is just understanding rushing does not get you as many dividends as really letting people have space to have a moment digest or when to let that digest. It's not like they don't have moments of shouting and yelling and running around, but those things just have more impact when you really let these things unfold and uh, the dramatic moments take their time to build and, and release. How did I love the voice, the whole voice command. I thought oh, yeah, I love that. they executed amazingly. First time we see it was at breakfast, which gets into kind of a very common movie trope or, or way to establish your film is getting up in the morning. We see how things go and that's, it's fine. Like, I think a lot of people think, you know, that's just the wrong way to go. It's not, it's really more about, uh, uh, structure, uh, substance more than structure. Um, the structure of it, it's fine to begin in the morning. It's more about what are you trying to achieve? What's different about the way they go about this than you normally would see in your own life. And in this case, right, he wakes up and he's just trying to have breakfast we of course learned that he has dreams and that he's lying to his mom about having a dream last night, but he wants water and water is such a cool way to introduce the voice because uh, water is important later in the film 
moisture water is vital to survival and him asking his mom for water uh is very telling of their relationship and what she provides to him she provides him life and his ability to continue and so i i take it as a very early foreshadowing symbolic feature of this scene but then on top of that she says i'm not going to hand it to you use your voice to make me and of course he does it one time she's like no 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 like use the voice and he does it and it's so cool because we see him speak but we don't actually hear him for like a couple of heartbeats later and then the voice kind of booms it's like a sonic boom that hits after the fact and we can see the first time you watch the scene it's very confusing the second time it made so much more sense because you see her hand on the water but then she didn't hand him the water and you're like wait what just happened so i didn't piece that together the first time the second time i was like oh she felt it and it was close. She almost like pushed the water over to him, um, but it didn't work because, you know, he just didn't have full control of the, of the, of the voice. But I love that kind of the, the voice itself is this bassy treble mixture with all these layered voices. It's not just his voice. It's like the Reverend mother's voice. Um, and it's like the full power of the church uh, is coming behind it to get you what you want. And then we see that again when the Reverend mother herself commands him and that of course pisses paul off but it's it it progresses uh what the voice is and what it does and how it feels to have it used on you because we're identifying with paul and so whenever she commands him he closes his eyes as we're pulling away like the camera pulls away and loses focus um and then we kind of do this quick push in and suddenly we cut to this kind of wide shot of him walking into frame and realizing what just happened. Like we feel the confusion and sudden arrival, much like the character does. You don't realize what's happening to you. You black out. Um, and so seeing it from this perspective is really cool. It's, and what I love about it is it's so well executed for an idea that could easily be very corny and hokey. It's delicate instead of just having someone like go into a zombie trance, which could work. I'm not saying it's a, the wrong way to go about it, but his way of executing it is so much cooler. Yeah. And throughout the film, you get maybe even some bigger ideas of the ways that the voice can be used, right? Uh, the voice command on that alien pet thing, right? That black thing that's kind of eating out of the dog dish. And she's like, mm -hmm. get that thing out of here. And uh, the dude is like, our pet doesn't understand our language. And then she commands it, right? Get out. And she looks at the dude. It understands. And so it makes me wonder, one, that pet is definitely coming back into play at some point. But then it also makes me wonder, can we use the voice against the sandworms? If it's not just limited to humans, uh, could it be used against the sandworms? I don't know, but could be cool. Well, and then they use it in the chopper when uh, when they make those those guys kill each other, yeah. right? Right, and it also introduces the idea that that guy's deaf. Um, so you, one, you can't use it against him. He's deaf. So maybe the worms are out because they, I don't see ears on them, but they're really big, weird, ugly creatures. So who knows? But yeah, it, they, you need to be able to hear the voice in order for the voice to work on you. It's an audio thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a great little sequence. Another cool going, staying on that idea of directing interesting script elements, um, was the Baron levitating. I love the way they handled it. The first time we see it happen, right? We, we see his back kind of light up. Um, and we cut to this big wide shot as he's talking about arachnid, my arachnids, arrakis, and he floats into the air. And I love that they gave him this 
big gown because it makes him larger. It's less silly visually. You can kind of feel him tethered to the ground still, even though he's not. And it gives him this very worm-like or snake-like uh, threatening whatever silhouette. Like he suddenly becomes this big empowering uh, figure, which he is in this world, of course. And then later on, they they take away the gown, but he still floats, except we see it out of focus. And he's coming into the frame way out of focus. And by the time he is in focus, it's really just a close up of his feet, just kind of the tips of them grazing the table. And it's freaking dope, man. That's that's really hard. And I, I like that you hide the effect where you can. Right. Because floating can be really cool. But it can also be silly if not done carefully. And so you have to pick and choose your moments of the way you make someone float. It can't just be always having someone suspended in the middle of the air. Um, but if you can kind of obscure it in fun, interesting ways, you can still get the power of it without pulling the audience out and laughing at what you're trying to do. So it's just a it's a delicate thing. Um, and I, I always appreciate that. that. I think that's one of the things that's always pulled me away from Superman. I just have struggled with that aspect. Well, the early Superman, um, those never a whole other thing. Um, so, <laughs> the visions, visions are messy and I love it. There's so much room for interpretation uh, because you don't know if what he's seeing is going to be literally what it, what happens. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's more uh, impressionistic and they set the stage for dreams and visions being a lot of things right uh, before the credits before the anything the cold open of the film is this alien voice and the, the translation is dreams or messages from the deep and then as we heard in that clip we played at the beginning duncan um is like after hearing paul's dreams he's like dreams make good stories but everything important happens when we're awake and so there's this you can say they're contrasting or maybe just adding context and value to what you do with dreams is more important than the dream itself. <laughs> and I, I like that a lot because later on at the end of the film, he has this vision right before his big fight. Um, and he's seeing himself get stabbed and die and bleed out on the ground. And on the one hand, we're combining that with uh, Chani saying, hey, this guy's a really good fighter. You don't have to suffer. And here, take this knife. It'll be an honor for you to die with this in your hand. You have no idea. <laughs> and so, and then now we're seeing this vision of him dying. So you can create some tension here like, oh, is this when he bites it? But instead, if you listen to what the, uh, the, the voice in his vision is saying, when you take a life, you take your own. And so seeing himself being killed is really good because it's, it's creating an idea of the value of life. And what killing does to you and does to your soul. Um, it's, it's very spiritual in that way. And I really appreciate them creating that, that value in the eyes of Paul. And it's very much in keeping with what you were talking about earlier with the, that house, House Atreides, um, and the way they view the world and their place in the world. Um, and it's emphasized once again through him struggling to take a life. And that moment is so good when he's trying to get the guy to yield and everyone's like, whoa, what are you doing? Um, and then he does it a few more times before uh, uh, Javier Bardem's character is like, is he toying with them? Like, this isn't okay. Um, his mom's like, no, no, no. He's never killed before. And it's like, oh, crap. And so you feel the significance and the weight of him killing someone. And that's cool. So I, I love that you're talking about this. I have a question. 
do you think that that guy is coming back? I was debating that. Um, I don't know. I think, I don't think so. I don't think he literally comes back. My, after watching this three times, I think he's going to have visions of this guy and this guy is going to become like a brother to him through the ether. He's going to train him through the ether, not literally in person. Um, I hope that that's, I hope that's the case, right? It's kind of this Obi-Wan yeah. aspect, yeah. I guess. Uh, crap. I hope that's the case. Cause at, when, when I left and walked out, I thought, man, they're totally going to bring that guy back because of, of a few things. One, he has all these visions of this guy training mm -hmm. him, yeah. but also they were carrying his body and they made it, made a, it a point to show them carrying his body, like a, not just a shot of them all of people, multiple people carrying the body, but a shot of the body being carried. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I'm just, so I'm like, why are they being that specific showing that, that this thing is being carried by these people? Not that these people are carrying a thing, yeah. um, which is very, you know, it's like subconscious almost, but, and so that made me think maybe he's going to come back, but I hope it's more along the lines of what you're suggesting where he has these visions, he goes to these places and this guy you know, his spirit trains him in a way that would be so much cooler if that, if that's the case. I don't know. That would be cool. And, and also selfishly, because I think that guy is a really good actor. His, I know. his range was really amazing. It's hard to come unhinged and he has these really wild moments and it, it just works. Uh, by contrast, I love Dave Bautista, but his unhinged moments early in the film felt a little forced. Yeah. I right? agree. Uh, I, agree. Was, I didn't know what was going on there too. Cause I like him as an actor. It's, it's kind of yeah. weird, uh, you know, like I, I, obviously he plays a totally different character in guardians, but, but I love him in that. Yeah. No one, ever, no one else could play uh, no, that, no. but, um, but yeah, you're right. You're right. It's those, those unhinged moments that made me feel it just felt not, not right. Yeah. I don't know. Weird. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I, I hope uh, it, we get what we want out of that. Um, mm -hmm. And now uh, the last little bits of notes are just kind of random. Some of the bits of world building that they do. One of the things Ricky pointed out uh, that I, I noticed on my third watch was how much that portal in the space looks a lot like the sandworms, right? It's this really long uh, tunnel looking thing with this huge kind of gaping mouth that very much reflects uh, the sandworm. And I don't know if that has any bigger idea behind it but i thought that was interesting i love all the languages creates a lot of depth of the universe right you have the ancient tongues that people are speaking in different uh languages that require subtitles brilliant and then you also the book have that he reads the fremen book the text you know, have it all written down in a different language is awesome I freaking cool um, and then you have like the Atreides sign language that seems that is specific to them. And it's just, it's a great way to have your own conversation with other people in the room. That's just brilliant. I, I really love that touch there. There was, and I want to talk a little bit about bad dialogue and good dialogue. There was one line in here and maybe a few of them, but this one kind of struck me the, the most that I was just like, I don't think that's appropriate. When Paul, uh, they're, they're putting on their suits uh, with his mom and he's like, now we have to go find the the Fremen. Are you good? And I'm just like, are you good? Like, what year is it? Is this, are they still talking this way? 8,000 years in the future? Uh, is this how casual a Duke speaks? Like you're, you're kind of royalty and you're, you're talking like you just stepped out of, you know, 95. And so just, are you good is 
wrong. It, I would have preferred like, are you ready? Um, you know, something that's a little more mm -hmm. formal and fitting of the, of the character. Uh, I don't know how that kind of thing slipped through. Um, it, it just felt wrong. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just being super nitpicky, but yeah, I think little things like that add up. Um, and what, yeah. what, who was saying, Paul who said was saying this to his to mom. Is Paul said it to his mom? Yeah, he's like, "Are you good?" He's <laughs> like, "What? Are you good?" <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess I could, I could see that sliding. He's a kid, you know. He's yeah, but he's trained. He's, not, he's there's no TV. I don't know. That feels a little too American. It feels yeah. very slang and and you know improper language. I don't imagine mm -hmm. royalty speaking that way in Buckingham Palace. Like even in modern times, yeah. they're not going to. I think I would have had a, a bigger problem with it if she would have said it to him, mm. or or if his father would have said it to him, or something like that. But yeah, yeah fair I don't enough. know. But yeah, I get it. I can <laughs> see the I can see the the issue there. Whereas there is the, a piece of good dialogue that I really liked. It's simple. It's as simple as "Are you good?" Um, which was "The night is fading," and it's this simple little idea, but it tells you a lot about the Fremen, right? Because the Fremen see the nighttime as their daytime and they think in terms of night as safety. And this is our hours of operation. And it's an inversion of life and thought where daylight means, means safety to us here. It means death. And so the night is fading is very significant. Like safety is fading. Great um, point. Great point. It's simple. And I love little touches like that. And that's why language to me, you know, can be uh, really important and significant and tell mm -hmm. a lot about your, your world and your story through tiny things. Yeah, I mean the the picture of night fading is yeah. it's just a beautiful flip. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's awesome. Pretty wow. cool. Not a lot of guns here, mostly swords and knives and missiles. Um and <laughs> some lasers. <laughs> but not a lot of guns. <laughs> like Dude, the lasers. Oh yeah. my gosh. That was that was dope. That was you know? Like just cut through anything. So anything. cool. And then he starts flying. Uh, Duncan even has to encounter like a big laser, right? He's flying around the city trying to avoid that. I think that's a great little scene. Pretty cool. And then did, I don't know if you felt this way, but the Arakan city looked very Blade Runner to me, like the angles and the architecture. I wouldn't be surprised if they ripped out some of the, the, of the Blade Runner sets and actually used it for this. But it sent me down this little train of thought. I was like, I wonder if this is still Jodorowsky's influence because the original Dune was supposed to be made by Jodorowsky and he had worked with H.R. Uh, Giger to come up with all kinds of style and uh, architecture to represent, you know, that the original like Harkonnen was supposed to be very a certain kind of thing. And since he didn't do it, this big binder became a massive influence. Jodorowsky's uh, prep work for Dune became a massive influence through Hollywood. And I would recommend anybody to go watch Jodorowsky's Dune um, because it talks about how big of an impact uh, his pre-production had on American or even, you know, uh, filmmaking throughout the world because Ridley Scott, that's how he came across H.R. Geiger or Giger when he was making alien. And so you see all those ideas kind of recycled through alien. And of course, Ridley Scott made blade runner. And so I can see that influence kind of seeping its way all the way back into, uh, being this cyclic thing that Denny says, let's go back to the roots. Let's go back to the original vision of this thing and, and, and play around in that. I don't know. I'm just kind of talking out of my neck, but it, yeah. 
it would make sense to me. Yeah. My last thought uh, is this story feels like a sci-fi fantasy version of Lawrence of Arabia. It just has all these telltale signs of uh, war being fought over this piece of land being a significant part of the war. Um, and then you have uh, someone that's going to go and raise up an army out of the sand dunes um, in order to fight against the empire. Like this is so Lawrence of Arabia written all over it uh, with the added wrinkle of the resource. Um, now I don't think Lawrence of Arabia had much to do with oil. Um, but whenever you start thinking about spice in terms of transportation, oil, the middle East, like you can see a lot of these things kind of, playing in harmony with each other as a, as a parallel to uh, the middle East and, and things and conflicts that have happened over there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. it, maybe if nothing else, it was just a way to frame the story and to be inspired and say, Hey, what are all the pieces that I can pull from and reimagine to tell a whole new story? Yeah. I don't know. I'm always fascinated with the, the ways that you can generate a new story by being inspired by other completely unrelated ideas and, and history and things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can take an existing story and add a few things and, and it's a whole different story, even if it's the same story. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think these parallels a hundred percent exist. I totally agree. Lawrence of Arabia thing. I didn't even think of that. And you said it, and I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. That, that, that makes total sense. You know, but if you actually think about it, there's really only a handful of stories that are, have ever been told. And we're just, what is it that, uh, that Bono said, every poet, every uh, artist is a cannibal. Every poet is a thief. We all kill our inspirations, sing about our grief. Just one of the best lines ever. And I think that that's, it's so true that, you know, we all, we look at things and even if we think that we're original, there's there, we are so influenced by things that we've seen, heard, and that's okay. That's mm -hmm. all right. You know, add your, your flavor to it. And this could be, this is just another one of those examples and, you know, we're no sandworms in Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it wasn't necessarily spice, but it's also about relationships and and about how you respond to those relationships. You know, are you going to are you going to embrace aspects of them? Or are you going to shun aspects of them? Like it's your it's, you know the human condition to have to make that decision, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, spot on with that for sure. Nice. I, I loved it. I thought it was brilliant in in so many ways yeah. and. Brilliant in that, in that I probably don't see the brilliance yet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm excited for where this goes. I'm a hundred percent in it's gorgeous. The set design, the, the production value is incredible. I think the lineup of actors is unbelievable. You have in one movie to have Oscar Isaac, Stellan Skarsgård, Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem and Rebecca Ferguson. Like, GTFO, yeah. man, I am, I am all about it. Uh, anything after that to me is just icing on the cake. Like, and I'm never going to shy away from Timothy Chalamet and I'm super excited to see Zendaya keep getting these really meaty roles. I've, I'm really enjoying seeing her career take, take off. Like, uh, Euphoria is excellent. Um, and she is incredible in that. And so, uh, I can't wait to see, you know, what else she has. This is just a, a, a dream of a lineup. Yeah. So agreed. What are you going to recommend this week? Yeah, so, uh, okay, it was kind of a toss up. So last night, last night, I, uh, my wife and I, and and my kids, believe it or not, I think we decided to let our kids watch stuff as long as we're there to let them watch stuff that we normally wouldn't. 
mm. because they've proven that they've proven that they can go to school and not say some of these words that they know not to say and <laughs> and that they know are wrong and yeah. you know they know the difference between uh you know like what they see on this this picture square and and real life uh anyway we watched a documentary uh, about Robin Williams on HBO and it just kind of like it just kind of hit us uh, a little bit his brilliance, but also, you know, his, uh, uh, brokenness and how, you know, a lot of us are broken and don't even realize it half yeah. the time. Um, especially till it's too late, but I, I want to recommend one hour photo because I, there, there's an aspect of that film. I feel like is so on and it's been a very long time since I've seen it. So I really, I'm recommending it because I want to go watch it again. And so I assume you sat and watched one hour photo with your kids, right? <laughs> no, definitely did not do that. We, we watched the documentary, right? It, and, um, and then we stopped at a certain points, you know, when it just yeah, got a little too much, but especially at the end, but yeah, that it's an underrated film. I feel like of, of his, but I think it's set, it's his performance is one of, for the ages there's yeah. just something about i think the honesty with him and there's one interesting thing that that uh, i'll just i'll say and then I'll, I'll let you get to yours that they have the director on the, the the director for one hour photo on the documentary and they said that that in between takes he'd be like super serious and then the moment they said cut he'd start joking instantaneously he'd be hilarious and the director i forget his name but he said he said, I just let him do it. It was almost like the the funnier he was, the better he was in the following take. So the moment he would say something and the entire crew would lose it, he'd say, okay, and action. And then instantaneously he would become this whole other person. It was like he had to get this out. He had to get out all of this, all the jokiness, the funniness, the, the you know, get basically do a brain dump in wow. order to be able to inhabit this other character. And it was, those were the best performances that he got out of him were those moments. It was just, it's very eye opening the kind of person that someone like Robin Williams, you know, has to be when he's in front of other people, but then how he's like super quiet. He was super quiet, you know, like alone and on these sets. So anyway, one hour photo. Dude, nice. And I assume uh, you're talking about come inside my mind. Yes. yes. Nice. I made yeah, it halfway through and I was just struggling. I was like, I can't. I keep meaning I to go back to it because, you know, how much I love them, but it's also hard to watch because of how much I love them. <laughs> yeah, it gets harder. <sighs> oh, good. Get an easier uh, pass halfway. Perfect. <laughs> so. um, I'm going to recommend, so I am a huge Oscar Isaac fan. Uh, he's got so many great things, even on HBO specifically. Uh, he's got at least two yeah. incredible things. Uh, one of them is, I think it's called PU-234 um, or PU-232, something like that. And it's a movie about yellow cake uranium and it's the first time i remember seeing him and i didn't know it was him at the time i just remember him being excellent and patty constantine being excellent um but he also just made another uh, series on hbo uh that's called scenes from a marriage and whoa it's incredible um and i mean it's challenging it's all about you know uh it's a drama about marriage so you know draw your own conclusions from that description right. but as good as he is, Jessica Chastain puts on an absolute clinic. This is, her, I think, this is her greatest performance, and I think she's a really wonderful actor. Wow! Uh, but I felt like she, this is when she found a whole other gear. Like this is far and away uh, her her greatest like performance she's ever put in. It's just it's unbelievable um, to me, anyway. 
And so Dude, I was I can't wait to dive into that. Yeah. I, I could not have been more happy uh, to see them both acting together, but to see just where she, where she landed. Um, because I don't know, sometimes I think she, you know, shows up and does a good job, but her voice doesn't always follow her performance and hearing her voice kind of change. She literally to me has a different voice in this than she's ever had. Uh, and so I was just blown away. Um, and if she keeps channeling this thing, I can't imagine I won't see everything she does on opening day. Like she is so good. Wow. <laughs> um, now that I've overbuilt that, mm-hmm. <laughs> stay, mm-hmm. <laughs> stay, stay tuned for next week. We're going to cover Daniel Craig's final James Bond. Uh, his last time out is 007 in no time to die. Um, so stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to drop us a review, subscribe on iTunes, all the things, leave us a note. If there's something you want us to cover, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. You'll never know if you don't try. Um, <laughs> and if you want to, yeah. if you want to leave oh, a note yeah. on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash Dune. And our quote of the day is from Catherine the Great. I love this quote, man. This is amazing. You philosophers are lucky men. You write on paper and paper is patient. Unfortunate empress that I am, I write on the susceptible skins of living beings. That. Where did you get that? I don't know. I was looking for a good quote about royalty and what it means to rule. And and finally, I was like, oh, yeah, Catherine the Great. Like, she's one of the greatest, like, rulers in history. And I'm sure you can make a really good argument. She was the greatest ruler. Uh, she did so much for the progress of women and the progress of her own, of her country, which was not her country. Like, she was not Russian. Um, she married into uh, Russian royalty and I, I forget if she was uh, French or where she's from Austrian or, or whatever, but yeah, she stepped in. And so if you've never, if you haven't seen the great on Hulu, go watch that. Like uh, it's, I want to say Elle Fanning and she's absolutely fantastic, but yeah, I was just curious, like what does she have? And that was the first one that popped up and it just blew my mind. I was like, damn, that's hardcore because as a philosopher, right? Uh, and you get you get her meaning. Like, as a philosopher, you get the luxury of ruminating in ideas that may or may not have an impact. As an empress, her what she says and does kills people. It saves lives, it kills lives, all of it. Um, and so, but the way that she phrased it, right? I write on the susceptible skins of living beings like that's and it kind of goes back to my point about royalty and the way they speak uh it's a different level of elegance in the way you see and discuss the world um and i wish we had a little bit more of that you didn't have to go full like roman you know speech but uh, i i i like that idea of they their stature is different they feel and speak and think differently uh, and yeah, yeah, great quote. I don't know. Yeah, I, I got both of those things queued up now. <laughs> Scenes from a marriage and and uh, Ooh, the great, uh, the great. So dude, you're gonna love it. I bet you you may want to cover it. Like it's so good. Um, and what the great, the great, because she's okay. great. And then oh, I forgot uh, Nick Nicholas Holt. Um, it Nicholas plays Holt. plays her husband, and he yeah. he's gonna kill you. Like he's. He's amazing. Yeah. 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 yeah awesome. Yeah. I'm excited about awesome, that. Awesome, man. 
Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Uh, it's been a long time in the making for this film. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. Please, like Wes said, share us with your friends and make recommendations. We'd love to hear uh, uh, what you'd like us to cover. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Spice. <laughs> <laughs>